Hello, 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 everyone. Welcome back to Money Awakenings. I should say welcome back to me, too. Took a brief hiatus. <clears throat> Actually, not that brief, a couple months. Through December and January here. You know, I'll let you in on some personal stuff. Uh, I let go of my my company, not the financial shaman, my other company that I had for seven years. I sold it to um, my assistant, the people who were running it for me. And an interesting thing happened. Um, a couple interesting things happened. First, even though I wasn't heavily in the business, you know, I was 90% into the financial shaman and 10% into my old business. It's the old student loan company I had. Um, when I let it go completely, this huge weight lifted off of me and I didn't know how much mental energy and energy in general, general I was spending on it. And so I was really taken aback by all the emotions and, you know, kind of saying goodbye and things I thought I had processed, I hadn't processed, you know, and I built that company from scratch and from scarcity. And I'm grateful I did it. I mean, I helped a lot of people and all that stuff, but I have, you know, I have a cutting edge business and finance degree, basically, because I spent so many years working on that company. But um, I really had to look at my workaholism. I really had to work, look at a lot of things that, you know, the pros and the cons of it. And I know you're thinking, well, why does that, what, is it, what, what the fuck does this have to do with anything? What it has to do with is you never know how much mental energy you're spending on something until it's out of your life. You know, it's like going through a breakup, a love relationship breakup. And you don't know how much you're codependent on that person until they're out of your life and you're like feeling sad and you want to reach out to them. You know, and you want them to tell you everything's going to be okay. And it's not till it, you know, fully gets out of your system till you have closure that you realize just how attached you were and how much of that, uh, you know, how much the company took up my identity. And I've seen this with people uh, with their jobs. I've worked with people and I, funny enough, or non-coincidentally enough, I was talking to a good friend of mine who has been at the same job for 15 years. You know, since our mid or early mid-20s, he's been at this job. Um, and, you know, worked his way up through the company and all this stuff. And it just didn't fit him anymore. And the company's going a different direction. And long story short, for the first time in 15 years, he, he got another job. And he was he called me because he was like, you know, I don't know what I should do if I should go with this new job or not. And I could tell it was just the fear of letting go that was stopping him. Because 
this new job checked off all his boxes. You know, he's closer to home and gets to spend more time with his family and so much less stress, um, which is worth its weight in gold to me at this stage anyway. And um, it's just it's just fascinating how much our identity, you know, he even said it. He's like, I feel like when I introduce myself, you know, as Americans is what we do. You know, we say, and what do you do, right? What's your name? What do you do? And so much of his identity was wrapped up into his job. And so, it was just interesting to hear from the outside and experience it for myself, how much of my life was wrapped into this and how letting go revealed that my persona had intertwined with this thing. And that letting go of an occupation or in my case a business is so much more than just, you know, handing over the paperwork and the payroll and all that stuff. It's letting go of this entire part of your life. But I don't mean part of your life like, you know, for me the past eight years, seven, eight years. I mean a part of my life as in a part that I identified with. Like, I was Larry Morris and the student loan expert. Now I'm, I'd be grateful to never have another conversation about student loans in my life. Of course, I'm sure I will at some point, but... It's just interesting to be like, oh, I'm, I'm Larry Morris and the financial shaman. I'm the beacon and, you know, here to help people wake up from this nightmare of financial worry and not by fixing their finances but by going after the worry itself the worst case scenarios in their imagination and so I took a hiatus my heart told me to obviously to stop putting out content and you know just take this time for myself and it's been uh, very very enlightening enlightenment is not what I thought it would be which is of course the idea <laughs> it is the remembering of everything that you purposely wiped your memory to forget that is true but it's more than that I mean the simplest term would be the simplest way to put it would be the you let go of the outer world being the real world and the inner and replace it with the inner world is the real world and the outer world is the illusion that's probably the simplest way to put it but until it actually happens it's just words until you can see the matrix for what it is it's just words concepts it is a beautiful illusion but anyway 
I'm back. At least for this podcast, anyway. And um, I have some things I want to share. Hopefully you want to go for a walk this morning and listen. I was just writing about the definition of self-sabotage is not listening to your heart. You have a heart, you have an ego who is desperately trying to keep control of your life. And I keep coming back to my famous line, my, my, my variation of a Buddhist question. Which would be, uh, those are geese going overhead, by the way. You know ducks and geese cannot feel the cold? They don't migrate like other birds from the, going south of the winter. I've seen ducks and geese sit on ice, you know, ponds that are frozen over. Just sitting on the ice. It's interesting. Anyway, I love nature. So where was I? You know, my famous Buddhist question line, infamous at this point, is if you're not listening to your heart, what are you listening to? If you're not following your inner guidance, what are you following? And most people would say, well, if they don't, if that question in and of itself doesn't reveal what they're not, you know, if you're not listening to your heart, what are you listening to? You're like, oh, yeah, that's right. What am I listening to? And most people would point to their logic. Well, your logic is based on past experiences and completely controlled by the ego and the subconscious mind, for the most part. And uh, the question came to me today when I, I was writing about it again, is does your logic have happiness as a priority? You know, if you're not listening to your heart, what are you listening to? And if you say, well, I'm listening to my logic over my heart because my heart leads me to heartbreak or whatever. And I would just say, well, does your logic have happiness as a priority or not? And if it doesn't, do you recognize that your life will not be happy? If you don't make happiness a priority, how do you expect it to ever get there. And if you're one of those people who's already arguing with someone who can't hear you and saying, well, you can't be happy all the time, I would say, why not? And why not just kill yourself then? And that sounds morbid and I get it, but, you know, death brings us home to a place where we can be happy all the time, where we are happy all the time. So, if you're saying to yourself, I can't be happy all the time, could that be your logic and your ego trying to convince you that it needs to stay in control? Wouldn't something that's vested in your unhappiness try to convince you that you couldn't be happy all the time? If you had a parasite... My, my other famous Buddhist question, my favorite one, how would you know you're brainwashed? If you had a parasite whispering in your ear, in your mind, 
that you couldn't be happy all the time? How would you know if it was lying? And I'm not, I'm not telling anybody to commit suicide, though it is your right to do so. Everybody has the right to die however they see fit. But suicide is not the answer. It's just a, it's like a parachute. If you, shit gets really fucking scary, you need, you need to pull a cord, you can. You came here to experience that parasite. You came here to experience the darkness. You came here to experience hell. But you got to ask yourself why. Because you like a horror movie? Or because you wanted to experience overcoming that darkness and beating it? If happiness isn't a priority to you, how do you expect it to ever happen? People come to me all the time and they say, well, if I had more money, I'd be happy. And I say, how do you know that? Because you're worried about money and you think more money will solve that worry, but it won't. Because the worry is happening inside of you and money is outside of you. I was watching a cute little comedy called The Big Sick, a little romantic comedy. And, of course, it had (laughs) just over-the-top silliness. But the overbearing parents that try to manipulate through guilt is something we can all identify with. They were a little over-the-top, you know, as a movie. But... Not to say that it doesn't happen. But the point is, people want things to be a certain way. They want life to be a certain way so that they, because they think that it'll make them happy. That's what the ego does. It's called the happiness equation. It's one of the ego tricks. There's 68 tricks the ego has. And, um,. One of them is the happiness equation. I've talked about it before, but in brief summary, it's when I get this thing, then I'll be happy. It's the carrot, the ego dangles. And what it does is it makes you chase the carrot outside of you instead of stopping and saying, wait a minute, happiness is inside of me. And the thing I say I need to be happy gives my power away to that thing. If I say I need a million dollars to be happy... What I'm essentially saying is I'm unhappy right now. And the million dollars that is completely out of my control is, has all my power, has power over my life. It's the same thing when people were saying that Trump or Biden or the government, you know, has to be a certain way or I can't be happy or, you know, I'm scared for my life because what the government's doing, like, then you're handing your power away to be happy. Did you know that if you turned off the news and stopped looking at social media, your life would still continue? Now I recognize that I use social media to 
excuse me, spread my message, but, or I should say unconditional love message that comes through me, but I haven't been on Facebook in over a year. No, more than that. I think it was right after the pandemic started. Right after the pandemic started and all that weird stuff started coming about, about all you have to do is drink hot water and well, I was like, okay, I'm done. And since then, I haven't really paid attention to the news besides what I needed to for my business. And my life has been 10 times happier. Now, I, of course, I've done a lot of spiritual work in that time frame too, but I stopped giving the power away. I stopped playing the game with the ego of the happiness equation and I started looking at why isn't my life happy now? What is the thing that's stealing happiness from me now? What is the, the gap that I'm seeing that I need to fill? The void that, I, that needs to be filled for me to be happy today? These are the kind of questions that lead you toward the heart's calling and toward the defeating the ego and toward happiness. Because if you're not asking these questions, you're going about life like a zombie, like, a, like on autopilot. What do I need to be happy now? What's stealing my happiness today? And most people will point to the worst case scenarios that are running in their head all the time. The nightmares, I call them the waking nightmares. I still deal with them sometimes too, don't get me wrong. I've got to go do something today and, you know, my imagination projects the worst case scenario and I'm like, no, you know, no, no thank you, right? I spent a lot of time on my hiatus with my imagination wondering why and investigating why it's not within my control. And if it's not within my controls, whose control is it in? And what's their agenda? You know, if you're if my mind is constantly flashing flashing to at me the worst case scenario, it could say that it's trying to protect me from that thing, but what if you spend all this time worrying about the worst case scenario, which my definition of worrying is worst case scenarioing. Right. Just focusing on the worst case scenario is worrying. And if your mind is flashing at you the worst case scenario, then trying to say, well, I want to protect you from this thing. And then you go to do the situation or the thing and that doesn't happen. How much time did you just waste? How much energy did you just waste thinking about the worst case scenario? Is that the proper use of the imagination? I would say no, in my opinion. No. The proper use of the imagination is quite simple. Uh, two things, really. But the main thing is to just work things out in your mind before you take any action steps, right? So, like, if I'm, I don't know, I'm hiring someone, let's say, 
I want to imagine the steps that are needed before starting. You know, I got to put out a job hosting or find LinkedIn or whatever. Or just put it out to the universe and follow that instruction. But, you know, maybe it's something simpler like I want to go chop wood for the winter. And my axe is dull or whatever, right? So I got to imagine the steps. Okay, I need to get the whetstone. I need to do this. And I need to make sure the stuff's dry, right? So you're imagining the steps before you take any to see if you have any. Good morning. To see if you have any um, blind spots that you can check on before you start, right? That's the proper use of the imagination. But too often... We get hooked on, I want to avoid this problem, which is the worst case scenario. And sometimes it does justice, right? Like I want to avoid chopping my hand off while chopping wood, my leg off. But most of the time, it's silly, nonsense, a waste of energy. It's the waking nightmare. And if you give power to that worst case scenario, you could end up avoiding things that aren't meant to be avoided. For instance, if, you know, you think about dating, maybe you had your heart broken recently or you've gone on hiatus from dating, and you're like, you get the inspiration, ideally from your heart, to put yourself out there again. And the worst case scenario starts popping up of I'm going to meet a serial killer or no one's going to like me or no one's going to like my profile or whatever. I don't, you know, or I'm going to be rejected or I'm going to get dick pics sent at me. I don't know what, you know, I don't know what the, what the worst case scenario is, I guess. Or I'm going to get my heart broken and then you don't do it. Now you're reacting to the waking nightmare with real world action. You're scared to get your heart broken again because that's what's happening in your imagination. And now you're taking real-world action to avoid love. What your heart wants. That's self-sabotage. That is the very definition of self-sabotage. When you do not do what your heart instructs you to do. If you're not listening to your heart, what are you listening to? In that scenario, you're listening to your ego and your worst, who's controlling your imagination and listening more to the worst-case scenario. So what if you get your heart broken again? Won't you learn something? Why would you avoid that? You do know all heartbreak is broken expectations. So could you manage your expectations or understand what creates expectations, which is projecting in the imagination and attaching to it? If I, if you were, let's say you were, you're listening to this and let's say you're driving or you're sitting at home or whatever, you're out for a walk like I am. And let's say you imagined a dragon. Like, you know, giant, winged, fire-breathing dragon. And in your imagination, you're driving along or you're walking along, 
and you imagine this dragon staring at you and then coming at you and attacking, and you started to run or drive the other way or get off the freeway, what would you call that? Nuts! That's nuts. You're reacting in real-world action, physical action. Physical-world action with something that's happening in your imagination. That's nuts. And yet, we do it every single day. I don't want to put myself out there because I imagine my, myself getting heartbroken. I don't want to leave this job I don't like because I imagine that this new job is going to suck or be worse or I don't have upward mobility or I won't get the same benefits, whatever. I don't want to leave this lover even though my heart is saying to leave them because I'm scared of being alone because I imagine being alone as worse. That's nuts. That's self-sabotage. And if you went to a psychiatric facility and said, I see dragons everywhere and I'm scared to death of them, they would put you on medication and probably in a padded cell. And yet, if you went to a psychiatric facility and say, I'm worried about running out of money, they'd be like, oh, yeah, just everybody is. You know, get a job. Because one is more socially accepted than the other. This is a great line by Anthony DeMello. I use it all the time. You come to a point in your spiritual practice where you say to yourself, am I crazy or is everyone else crazy? Or are we all crazy? Is it all an acceptable delusion? A widely accepted delusion? And that's what scarcity is. It's a widely held accepted delusion. Because there is no such thing as scarcity. Everything is always provided for. There's always enough. Now, testing that boundary <laughs> takes real, real emotional courage and strength. But the boundary is there. You spend enough time being homeless like I have or around homeless people. <clears throat> you realize that they're always provided for too. Just like we all are. You'll always have your basic needs met. If poverty could kill you, 90% of this world would disappear. 90% of this world is what we consider impoverished. definition of self-sabotage is not listening to your heart. Now most of you would say, well, what if I can't even hear my heart? Then that's where you need to begin because your entire life is self-sabotage then. If someone says to me, I don't know how to listen to my heart, the thing I ask them, well, a couple things. The first thing I ask them is, are you happy? 
most of the time it's no, because who's going to be happy if they're not listening to their heart? Excuse me. The second thing I ask them is, okay, what, what's your, what makes you excited? Uh, if you don't have, excuse me, if you don't have clear direction from your heart, you got to go back to your excitement. What excites you the most? Does your life excite you right now? Is there anything about your life that excites you right now? And you could say your coping mechanisms. I used to say that. With my workaholism and... You know, I I used to work 68-hour week, 80-hour weeks, and... I thought I was building to a, a thing, you know, building something that would last and hustling to get to where I wanted to go. And I was lucky enough to get there to see that that's not what I wanted at all. But, uh, you know, what I did was I was a beer, beer and wine connoisseur, right? That was my coping mechanism, alcohol. And I thought, well, the only thing that excites me is going wine tasting or going to a brewery. Yeah, because those are escapes from the fucking nightmare I had created from my, from my life. Those are my coping mechanisms because I was unhappy. So if you say this something similar, well, the only thing that excites me is playing video games. Well, the only thing, you know, maybe your heart's calling is found in being a professional gamer or something. I don't know. But if you're like, the only thing that excites me is sleeping. The only thing, I had a, I had a dear friend like that. She's still a dear friend. Back in the day, that was the only thing that made her happy was sleeping. And because she had so many demons, demons are just lower, uh, low perceptions of the self. So if you say, I'm not good enough, that's a demon. But, um, you know, she had a lot of demons to deal with. And so sleeping was the only time she found peace. And that was her coping mechanism for life. And so if you're at a place where the only thing that excites you are your coping mechanisms, just be aware of it. You don't need to change anything. No one's going to take your coping mechanisms away. Coping mechanisms are like training wheels when you learn to ride a bike. Once you learn how to process your emotion and face your demons and go toward your heart's calling and listen to your heart and face your ego, excuse me, this thing happens. <laughs> Every time, I haven't had it because I've been recording a podcast in so long. My, you know, my nose gets stuffed up when I talk in the morning. But it's only when I talk. Like, I can breathe fine if I don't talk. Anyway, where was I? No one's going to take your coping mechanisms away, and no one's going to make you feel ashamed of them. Like I said, I was an alcoholic, hardcore alcoholic for 24 years. Um, more than half my life. And, uh... I let it go when it was time to let it go. And I tried to quit many times. 
but always that you know had to face my demons right had to face my the shit that was there that the alcohol was quieting down or numbing and it wasn't until after I learned how to listen to my heart and after I learned how to process my emotions that I could let it go because then I could lean on these new tools of, okay, here's my not good enough story, here's my imposter syndrome, here's, you know, my conditional love, brainwashing, and I could work on them without reaching for the booze. But until that time, you don't have to be ashamed of your coping mechanisms. They're fine. As long as they're not destroying the relationships around you you should be fine and just know that they're training wheels and eventually you'll let them go when it's time my point though is if the only thing you're excited about is your coping mechanisms then it's time to maybe take some time out of your life maybe it's time to take a week just go into nature you don't necessarily have to go on vacation. I mean, I guess you would from your job. But maybe it's time to take a, a real, real big break from everything. And just be alone for a while. Ideally in nature. I did this, you know, uh, God, it was years ago now. And it was right when I first got the RV. I was like, everybody, I'm turning my phone off. I'm taking five days, you know, middle of the week. So basically all this time off and um, I was going to turn my phone off and just, you know, I found a spot for the RV in the middle of fucking nowhere um, where I was out of cell service, out of computer range and uh, computer range, <laughs> Wi-Fi or anything um, right away from people and just was in nature long enough to get some clarity and let everything kind of wind down. You know, I felt like I had all these plates spinning all the time, and I was just like, if a week, if all the plates fall apart from a week being gone, then they need to. And I finally had to get to that point because my sanity was starting to slip into a dangerous place. And so maybe it's that time for you too. And I was away from the booze as well. And um, I never forget, I mean, this was just how I did it. You don't have to mimic me or anything, but all I did was take a yellow sheet of paper, a yellow sheet, a yellow pad of paper and a, and a pen and sit by the campfire and do, I did Byron Kitty's the work for hours, just on thoughts that I had been thinking about people in my life, about my unhappiness. I just questioned it. You know, all the beliefs. I have to work hard to prove myself. Is that true? Can absolutely know that that's true. And I meditated and went for nature hikes. And the time I came back, everything was clear. I was like, I've forgotten that work was supposed to support my life, not become my life. And that's what had happened. My workaholism had driven me to make my identity my work. And everything was wrapped in it. My worthiness, my integrity, 
I had all these weird conceptions about keeping my word. You know, business is... Anyway, that's a whole other subject. But I had built my, you know, reputation. It's so funny because I couldn't give a shit less about my reputation now. But I'm a different person then than I was. <clears throat> and so... My point is, like, if that's where you are, where the only thing that excites you is escaping your life, then maybe you need to escape it in a different way for a little while. Not escape it with a coping mechanism, but escape it with nature. Or alone time. Peace of, you know, peace. Get some clarity. Because when I came back, I realized that what I was doing was not what I wanted to do anymore. And it was hard for me to swallow and face that, but it was true. I was like, I'm way more at peace away from my business than in it. And that was the genesis of where I am now, you know, where I was, you know, probably the last podcast I made in November is when I let the business go and all of it could finally leave me. The energy, the mental, the vast mental energy I was spending and keeping in the back of my mind of, oh, okay, so it's this week, I got to do payroll, I got to do this, this, and that. Even though it was only a few hours a week, like I said, it was 90% on financial shaman, 10% on this other thing. Even though it was only a little bit, it, 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 the culm- it was the culmination of, you know, eight years of work. Shit, was it eight? It was eight years. Oh, my God. Yeah, I started it November 2015, right after my mom died. No, so seven years. Yeah, eight years in the in the business in the industry of student loans, but seven years in the business. Yeah, seven years, seven years of life, and I had to let it go, and I had to give myself the space and time to really let it go energetically. To kind of not grieve it necessarily, but kind of to let the old self die. And my codependency on it and its codependency on me. I had this business partner one time years and years ago. And he said something I never forgot. I mean, he said a lot I never forgot. But he always had this habit of, he had this habit of, anytime he'd start a new venture, he'd take a vacation beforehand. So let's say he was, you know, in between whatever and businesses or ventures or whatever you want to say investments because an investment is an investment of time and energy as well as money but he'd be like okay i'm gonna start this thing and then he'd go on vacation for two weeks before he started anything for a couple of reasons his main reason was because he knew how the startup phase of a business was and he knew it was going to be a long time before he got another vacation but the second reason he did it was the reason I 
really took notice of this habit. He's like, I need my energy clear before I enter this thing. I don't want to bring in any baggage from the other stuff if I can't. And what hit me yesterday was my heart had told me to take this time away and not do any posting and not do any, well, I did writing. I, I did a shitload of writing, but not do any, you know, blogging, not make any videos, not make any podcasts, and just be alone. And of course, it's been two months. And it wasn't until yesterday that it hit me that my heart was telling me to do this thing for that same reason. Not because I don't know when I'll get another vacation. I already have the next one planned. That's not it. But because I needed to let go energetically and not, you know, I, I just built and put in seven years of my life into a business and an industry that I really needed to let go of and let go of the identity of that, of the, you know, myself that was wrapped in the identity of being a student loan expert. It's just fascinating how when you listen to the heart, it knows what's best for you. And I don't know that I would have chosen that for myself, at least not this long. But I, it was the best thing for me, is the best thing for me. I'm not, not gearing up financial shaman and going gung-ho, guns blazing just yet. And um, this alone time is what I had coveted since that time I took a week off. It was like, I can't wait to get to the place where I don't think about that business anymore and here I am for the last few months not thinking about it or not thinking about it very much focused ahead of me and not behind me grateful for it technically I'm focused on going up not for but still that's a whole other subject in and of itself. My point is, if you're not happy with your life, which I wasn't, but I didn't want to admit that to myself. The only thing that excited me was getting drunk. And it wasn't until I really took the time away to love myself, which is, you know, taking time away is an act of self-love. To be in nature, to meditate, to work on myself, to look at, you know, investigate my brainwashing. It wasn't until that time I was like, I'm not happy. And what do I need to do to make happiness a priority? Because all this success in business wasn't making me happy like I thought it would. You know, people knowing who I am and hearing my reputation and wanting to work with me. More and more exposure. Some people would be like, well, 
you just weren't ready for the fame. And I was like, well, yes and no. I didn't want to be famous for that. I thought I did. I didn't want to be famous for being an expert in student loans. When I started the business, I did. But it had changed because I had changed. And I was like, my heart's not there anymore. My heart's here in helping people follow their heart's calling. In helping people undo the brainwashing that says money's going to make you happy. Because I've, I've been there. I know what it's like. You get a bunch of money and you're happy like a drug addict just got a shitload of their drug. And it wears off so fast. So fast. Because it was built from the outside. You attach your happiness to something outside of you. You got hooked by the ego into the happiness equation. Once I get this thing, I'll be happy. And you get it, and then the ego moves the goal. And you're back to being unhappy again. Even though you have all this money. This is what, if I was going to be famous, which I don't have any control over that, this is what I'd want to be famous for, is asking these kinds of questions. If you're not following your heart, what are you following? How would you know you were brainwashed to be a drone worker and fulfill someone else's dream instead of your own? Where is all this work, hard work getting you to finally be able to retire when your mind is slipping and your body's decaying? That's a shit, in my opinion, that's a fucking shit trade. I trade 30, 40 years of my best years for, what, not having to worry about money when I'm old? And yet, what's the number one worry of all elderly people? The number one worry above death is running out of money during retirement. Not a painful death, not cancer, not death of a child. The number one, number one worry or fear of the elderly, anybody over 70, is running out of money during retirement. Think about that for a second. That's what everyone's working to try to quiet that fear. That's where all this hard work is leading you to. And even when you've worked your ass off and you finally get to retirement, you still have that worry. Because why? Because you never dealt with where the worry comes from, which is the worst case scenario in your imagination. That is where the battle is, not outside of you. Your battle is not with money. It's with the fear of running out which is inside your imagination. How did we forget that the universe always has our back? How did we forget that we can't run out? Now, yes, you might not be taken care of the way you think you should be. That's a whole other subject, too. 
But you can't run out. Your basic needs will always be met. You're like, Larry, I can't, yeah, but I don't want to be homeless and have my basic needs met. Why not? I have. I've been homeless in the freezing cold. Whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And yet, people will avoid things that they know won't kill them. Like a broken heart. Broken hearts never killed one person. I mean, if you want to get into body stuff and like how the vibration of stress will kill the body, that, okay, fair enough, that has killed plenty of people. But my point is, unless you've taken some kind of violent action, getting your heart broken by love is not going to kill you. But how many people avoid it? How many people avoid becoming an entrepreneur? And that's another thing I want to be remembered for. Helping entrepreneurs, my kith and kin, the people that have a dream and are willing to chase it, not knowing what the fuck's going to happen. That's courage. That I admire and embody myself. It takes courage to fail over and over and over again and still get up the next day and try again. It takes courage to go on date after date after date or have your heart broken over and over and over again and get up and try again and learn what you need to learn about yourself and love yourself and find the part of you that doesn't want you to be happy, the part of you that's self-sabotaging you and put it under a microscope and dissect it investigate it, inquire, why are you doing this? Why is there a violent, well, ideally not violent, but why is there a strong opposition inside for me to grow and change and evolve? Where is it coming from? What is its purpose? you're not listening to your heart, what are you listening to? Why is it there? What's your dragon that needs to be slain? Is it the one that says, well, if I leave my job, my family will hate me or we'll be broke and destitute? Or if I chase that dream, I'll end up eating out of garbage cans. What's the dragon that you're scared of? Because I've been homeless. I've been homeless more than once. I've been to the place where I ran out of food. And I'm still here. Maybe you don't want to go to that extreme, and I don't blame you. I don't recommend it, but I'm glad I did it. I, I truly hope no one follows in my footsteps, but at the same time, I know there will be.
You're not going to die. Every ounce of pain brings with it a gift if you're willing to stay in that pain long enough and snatch the gift from the darkness. It's fascinating to me how pain works, how suffering works. I am in awe of the Master Carpenter's work. Because to have pain be severe, you have to resist it. Think about this for a second. I saw one of my favorite comedians, Dan Cummins. And don't get me wrong, there's a lot of stuff I disagree with him about. But he has this, he had this great segment on one of his specials about what it would be like to punish a child, and I don't believe in punishing a child. Let me make that very, very clear. You should never have punishment. You're an adult. You should be able to communicate, communicate, communicate clearly to a child why their behavior is not conducive to harmonious society or harmonious living with a family. But he had this very interesting part where he said, what if you wanted to punish a child and they went with it instead of resisted it? The punishment would fall apart. He was talking about his kid. And he was like, what if I was like, I'm going to spank you? And he was like, go ahead. Do it harder. If you didn't, you would, the parent would immediately stop and go, whoa, what, what's going on here? Okay, well, then I'm going to ground you. And the kid was like, you know what? I've been a little too wrapped up in my social interactions. I'd be great to have some home time. Thank you. Well, I'm going to take all your technology and toys away. You know what? I need to meditate anyway. And I, I could go on a technology fast and get centered and grounded. Thank you. Think about it for a second. If you went with it instead of resisted it, it would lose all power. Pain and, and suffering in and of itself needs you to resist it for it to be painful. Because there are people in this world who enjoy pain and get off on it. The masochists. You know. So to them it's not pain. It's not nearly as severe. But it's the resistance and avoidance of pain that creates so much more of it. It's like, you remember Spinal Tap? This, these things go up to 11. Like, it's like pain is like at a 1, and if you resist it, it gets ratcheted up all the way to 11. Or 10, or whatever. It fascinates me that you have to resist it. And yet there's a part of you that wants the pain because you are God and you couldn't actually have anything that you don't want to have. So there's a part of you that wants the pain that is completely separated from your conscious awareness. Or let me say it like this. There's a part of you that wanted, wanted to experience every ounce of pain that you've ever experienced. You just don't remember wanting it. That's the memory illusion. You set every bit of suffering up 
before you got here and you wanted it. You just don't remember wanting it. And the not remembering wanting it causes the resistance, which intensifies the pain. How much energy do you waste avoiding things that you think will be bad? Things that you imagine will be bad. It would be terrible to be homeless, Larry. (laughs) Well, maybe, maybe not. You know what's interesting? Every single time I've been homeless, I gained so much wisdom, but also I gained a better location. (laughs) It's fascinating. I looked at it the other day. The first time I was homeless, I was living in the Bay Area in this tiny little condo. Bottom floor condo in the middle of nowhere. Well, it was in Alameda. I loved it. I loved the location, but I was in like a place with no view. And then I went and came homeless, and I was living by a lake in a tent in Shasta. Gorgeous view, surrounded by nature. Yeah, I was worried about where my next meal was going to come from, but I had this great view. Second time, I was in San Diego in a, not necessarily a basement, but I was living in a basement-type room in this tiny house in Escondido, And then when I was homeless living in my car, I was on Mission Bay looking at the bay. Yeah, I was worried about where my next meal was going to come from. I was terrified. But I literally would wake up with the sun looking at the bay and go for long walks along the water. The third time, I was living in a fucking trailer park. Which... You know, no, I'm not talking down, but it was, you know, it was pretty bad. And then when I was kicked out of that trailer park, I have this gorgeous view along the river and the mountains. Yes, not worried, worried about where our next meal is going to come from. But at the same time, a beautiful place to be. All those things that you're worried about might help you grow more than anything else. And avoidance of those things might keep you the same. Which one's worse? Staying the same or growing? not listening to your inner guidance what are you listening to I guarantee it's the part of you that wants to stay the same because if you stay the same you won't have to catch the ego and that's the real shame Well, my friends, as always, I'm grateful for you spending the time with me, and I hope something I've said has 
lit a fire or stirred something within. If you don't know how to listen to your heart, start by following your excitement. Even if it's the smallest thing. Even if it is that coping mechanism. Who fucking cares? If it makes you excited, go toward it. Uh, I'm just excited to watch these YouTube videos about future movies coming out. Then do that! Maybe that's your inner child that just wants to play a little bit. Follow your excitement and don't make excuses for not doing it. Don't judge it. Just follow it. Start doing some heart meditations. If you're not meditating... Just take 15 minutes out of your day, put your focus on your breath and your heart. Feel the heartbeat. That's how much I want you to pay attention to your heart. Your mind just wanders because it always wanders and that's fine. Don't judge where it goes. Don't judge it at all. Just let go of whatever it's wandering to and come back to your breathing and your heart. You do this over and 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 over, you'll start to sense the energy in your heart. And it'll be like the old hot and cold game. It'll get excited. It'll start to feel passion, like it'll blaze a little bit when you're getting toward what it wants you to do. And then from there, It'll grow and grow and grow, and you can start talking to it and actually listen to it. But just start with excitement. Start with meditation. And if you can already, if you do already get guidance from your heart, I want you to do everything in your power to only listen to it, to surrender all free will to only what your heart says, no matter how crazy it sounds. Even the smallest thing. What should I eat today? When should I eat today? That one act alone completely changed my life. I had already gotten to the place where I could ask it questions. Simple yes or no questions at the time. But I could already ask it questions and get responses that I knew were from the heart. I could verify they were from the heart, not from the ego. And then something happened, long story short, I was like, why don't I just ask it everything, for everything? And that one single decision changed everything. No matter where you are, know that you're unconditionally loved at all times, no matter what, that you chose to be here and experience everything that you've experienced, all of it serves a purpose. You matter. You wouldn't be in existence if you didn't. You wouldn't be here if you didn't. You wouldn't be listening to this if you didn't. My unconditional love to you. Thank you again for listening. We are different grains of sand on the same beach different mountains in the same range, clouds in the same sky. Be well, be gentle with yourself. Good journey, my friends.